Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome uh, to the LSE. For those of you who are coming from outside, uh, welcome to the theater. For those of you who are coming just inside, uh, and, and I think we have a very good evening in store for us. My name is Michael Barzillet, and I'm a I'm professor of public management uh, here at the LSE and also serving as head of the department of management. It's uh, usually trite to say so, but it is truly an honor uh, to chair this evening's uh, public lecture by Professor Sidney Winter, who is here in the department this year as the BP Centennial uh, Professor. For those of you who don't know about the Centennial Professor, BP Centennial Professor scheme, uh, it is designed to attract to the school academics of outstanding international distinction in their field of study in order to add to the presence of eminent scholars in the school community. The criterion of outstanding international distinction implies that a BP Centennial Professor will make a contribution to the school as a whole and not merely to a single department, and so this evening is our uh, generous effort to share Sid Winter with the rest of, uh, of the school. Uh, school is grateful to BP for um, um, donating to the fund uh, that allows this uh, event to occur and for Professor Winter to have been here with us uh, during the entire academic year. Professor Winter is the true embodiment of a social scientist, someone who is a critically minded and historically informed theoretician who seeks to develop empirically examined generalizations about very complex phenomena that have been pervasive and even and have enormous consequences for societies and economies. He's also the very embodiment of an analyst and expositor on a broad range of practical issues, uh, whether concerning public policy or management, both of which are implicated uh, in the title and topic of this evening's lecture. Uh, in all these ways, in my opinion, Professor Winter embodies uh, the management department of the LSE of the future. Um, and we're very proud to have the future uh, with us in the form of such a distinguished visiting uh, colleague. By way of pedigree, uh, I would mention that Professor Winter earned his PhD in economics at, uh, from Yale University uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, among many uh, activities, professional activities, uh, he's served on the staff of the RAND Corporation and of the President's Council of, uh, of uh, Economic Advisors. Um, and all of that before 1966. Um, as part of his public policy-making career, he served for about four or five years, I think five, as the chief economist of the uh, then-denominated uh, General Accounting Office uh, in Washington. In terms of his academic career, it's so far been uh, primarily based at the University of California, Berkeley, University of Michigan, Yale University, and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where, in the latter case, he is the Deloitte and Touche Professor of Management uh, and, believe it or not, emeritus. Uh, he is the author of many works, many of which are uh, in the uh, A journals of our field, um, uh, but most distinguished and most known uh, for a uh, book uh, jointly uh, with Richard Nelson called The Evolutionary Theory of Economic Change. And this is an extraordinarily widely cited volume. Um, before I came down here, I did check uh, the Google Scholar, Scholar sites, and it's up at 26,019. 
Uh, I wasn't quite sure uh, what to compare uh, this with, with the number 26,019, so I tried Karl Marx's uh, capital, <laughs> which, believe it or not, and you can check this yourselves, is 26,079. <laughs> so you've got a few sites to go. Uh, that's it. Uh, I'll just say on a personal note that um, when I was back in 1980, when I was a student at Yale, uh, Professor Winter, for some reason, I still haven't figured out, spent hours with me talking about my own work and giving me a preview of the evolutionary theory of economic change. I'm completely clueless about why this happened, uh, but very grateful and tried to re return the favor by spending some time with my own students. Um, his research focus in recent years has been on the study of management problems from the viewpoint of evolutionary economics, and the lecture today will develop and illustrate the observation that innovative activity is commonly conceived in terms of flashes of creative insight. However, that's a bit overstated. Success rewards expertise, persistence, and practice just as much as creativity. Uh, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is um, that, what I call the number sign, hash LSE winter. This evening's event is being recorded and in principle is uh, to be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Uh, after the lecture, in the usual way, there will be an opportunity to make uh, questions, which I'm sure will be fully answered. So would you please welcome uh, Professor Winter and uh, um, warm up for his talk, Practice Makes Progress, the Multiple Logics of Continuing Innovation. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, and good evening, everyone. Uh, it has certainly been a pleasure to get acquainted with this legendary institution uh, in my uh, capacity as a visiting professor here and to have a chance to renew uh, some old friendships and to make some new ones among the colleagues here. The starting point for my discussion this evening is an old question. What are the key mechanisms and requirements for economic pro progress? Over the years, quite a number of answers to that question have been put forward, and uh, they have economists and other observers have constructed support for those answers uh, through various kinds of empirical research. They've sought to explain the variance of economic progress, and there's a lot of that variance to explain. So if I were presented with the list of considerations that they have studied uh, in the form of possible answers for a multiple choice question, I would be looking for the line at the bottom where the option says all of the above. Uh, because in my view, the magic uh, of economic progress is in the mix, not in any particular cause or any particular precondition. Uh, the mix is quite a complicated phenomenon and does not uh, provide a very suitable topic uh, for study as a whole and certainly not for a lecture. So researchers have tended to narrow their focus and bite off manageable chunks of this uh, large topic, and I'm going to be doing that uh, same thing uh, today. Um, so I emphasize that because in taking the path that I am taking this evening, 
I do not by any means mean to discount the importance of the many considerations that I am leaving out of my story. I'm just trying to bring up the light on some particular uh, considerations that I uh, believe to be relatively neglected. So it's easy to describe the package uh, of the lecture. There is one key idea, one key contrast, which is the contrast of ideas versus logics of innovations. And there are going to be three examples of this idea of the logics of innovation, which I hope will uh, give you an appreciation at least of what it is. And then I will, as time permits, uh, offer some brief comments on uh, related discussions in economics, management, and public policy, and say a few words uh, to wind up. So uh, that is uh, easily described, but it's actually an ambitious program. And so I'm going to ask you, in spite of the things that Robert Sutton said last night about the uh, infeasibility of multitasking, uh, I'm going to ask you to do some reading while I'm talking, and that way we will uh, get through the, uh, the subject. Excuse me. So, um, uh, the first heading is the drivers of innovation, the uh, key contrast that I talked about. And given that I am talking about the sources of progress, you're of course not surprised that I'm talking about innovation. There's nothing surprising about linking progress to innovation. In fact, commentary about the importance of innovation has been at saturation levels in the public discourse for some time now. In discussion of innovation today, we hear a lot of reference to creativity and even more to ideas. Popular accounts often feature the particular moment at which the idea appeared in thought, a typical aha or eureka moment. If you are fortunate enough to have an idea, you can patent it and you can start a business and get rich. You can find a lot of people offering to help you with that uh, and uh, they can help you along the path in one way or another. So as a sort of a symbol of the zeitgeist, uh, I give you this Deloitte form for applying to the technology talent competition uh, with your business plan. And there is the, uh, the typical light bulb symbol uh, for the idea that is the next big technology idea. Uh, so. If you can't uh, come up with an idea, of course, you might be able to buy a book uh, about how to have ideas. So that's another idea entirely uh, by which people manage to exploit this particular uh, zeitgeist. The part of the program that involves uh, patenting your idea could be problematic because, uh, in principle, uh, ideas are not patentable. But that doesn't deter people from offering you help with how to do it, as you see from this uh, selection from... Uh, a, a website, and if you search on that question, you will find plenty of help on the notion of patenting ideas. Actually, the, uh, the kind of idea that is not patentable is called a mere idea, but uh, the degree to which ideas are mere ideas uh, tends to vary with the observer, so that there's uh, some uh, eye of beholder effect there. Uh, so this ret same rhetorical bundle includes much reference to entrepreneurship and enthusiasm uh, for uh, startup firms, especially uh, for their alleged job-creating job capacities. 
Ideas expressed in entrepreneurship are often touted as the cure for contemporary economic ills. There are numerous attempts to design institutional contexts that are favorable to early stage entrepreneurship. The general idea being to reproduce the success of Silicon Valley. But in the perspective of economic thought, today's strong linkage between innovation and ideas is somewhat paradoxical. Most of the language that we use today when we talk about innovation and entrepreneurship is actually a legacy of Joseph Schumpeter, the great economist who, above all, portrayed capitalism in historical and evolutionary terms and pointed to innovation as the prime mover of capitalism. But our specific uh, usage in this area does not follow Schumpeter's example, for it's quite inappropriate to identify Schumpeter with the new ideas concept uh, of innovation. Schumpeter, on the contrary, emphasized the diverse difficulties faced by the innovative entrepreneur, high rates of failure in making the attempts. And this observation remains emphatically true today. While there's certainly an element of truth captured by the emphasis on new ideas, any author of an academic paper knows that promising ideas are quite cheap relative to completed papers embodying the ideas. Cheap and also fun, since working at the motivating ideas of a project is very uh, often the best part. Uh, I don't recall that Schumpeter ever made dismissive uh, comments about ideas, but he did say some rather dismissive things about inventions, saying as long as they're not in practice, they're irrelevant, emphasizing that the entrepreneurial function is not a matter of invention uh, or creating the conditions uh, that the enterprise exploits, but rather it consists in getting things done. So to talk about innovation in terms of ideas is by Schumpeterian standards, I think, to make the story sound a little too easy. Uh, what you need is the happy accident uh, of an aha, and then you go on perhaps to the patent, the uh, startup, and the uh, wealth. Well, this emphasis on ideas uh, underemphasizes uh, certain important things. The first of those is the importance of persistence and hard work. As Thomas Edison said in this famous quote about genius's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Edison also made the comment that opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. So... Uh, <laughs> That is, that is the uh, uh, emphasis on the persistence and hard work aspect. Then there is the clear fact of a very large social process which generates underlying advances in science and technology over extended periods of time. There's the role of many contextual and organizational factors which are much studied uh, for the, the, uh, the key to producing innovative uh, environments and finally, there is the existence of substantial bodies of knowledge that point out plausible paths to progress, but do not describe the detailed uh, uh, implementation that should follow. 
So these are the points that I am emphasizing in my presentation today in an effort to rebalance the discussion somewhat relative to the standard uh, emphasis on ideas. And the novel elements in my presentation, if any, uh, are not entirely my creation, nor are they entirely novel observations. What I'm here calling logics are close cousins of familiar concepts that have been introduced and studied under other names, including natural trajectories, technological paradigms, technological trajectories. More general terms such as heuristics and principles are also uh, uh, relevant here. The uh, field, this uh, body of understanding, has been built by the contributions of scholars from a large number of fields, including uh, many friends of mine and uh, people in this audience. So uh, it is quintessentially a multidisciplinary endeavor, and I am touching the high points of some part of the uh, insight that I think this endeavor has, uh, has brought to us. So on to the three illustrative logics. Let me watch my time. Um, uh, I'm going to talk about these three examples of driving logics of innovation. Increasing the size of equipment units, decreasing the uh, size of design features, and spatial replication, more of the same uh, only elsewhere. These uh, three ideas, three high-level logics, uh, can be remembered under the three headings of up, down, and sideways. Those are the th three uh, logics on which I focus this evening. So let me offer some generalizations about the nature of these logics. Not just these three. There are many others, and I am focusing on these three because they're relatively clean examples uh, to expound. They have a fractal structure, meaning that it's not just that there's an important top-level idea. There's also subsidiary ideas, and then subsidiary ideas and heuristics nested in Broadwoods and, and on and on uh, down through the structure. Some of these have a strong basis in what we call STEM knowledge, science, technology, technology, engineering, and mathematics, a buzzword in the US, I don't know about here. Uh, but uh, uh, others, not so much. Many of them are familiar paths to innovation, none guarantee success, uh, and certainly not the specific success that is achievable within particular constraints. But all, I argue, are very powerful shapers of the uh, world that we live in and uh, are continuing to shape it now. So how can, they are, they are powerful shapers of the world we live in, but they do not describe an actual way to achieve anything in particular. Perhaps if they did, there would be no need for the practice referred to in my uh, title. In every case, success with the logic depends on solving a host of problems that are associated with actual physical materials, people, and locations that are uh, involved in implementing the, the uh, high-level idea. So this raises the question, one could stand back from that and say, well, is the high-level idea really an important uh, feature of this situation, or is it this vast uh, substructure of uh, additional problems and mechanisms of problem solution that uh, is the key? Well, that is a contestable point. 
But I argue that indeed the high-level logics are very powerful drivers of uh, change, and, while not being miraculous in their effectiveness. They do not, by themselves, yield any specific results. And you could ask, how can that be? How can something be a powerful uh, driver of change and yet point the way to nothing in particular? That is a very important question, a crucial question for my case here. And it is a question, uh, it, it's a question that has an answer. And the answer is that there are large bodies of specific knowledge in the world that are really knowledge about how to try to achieve objectives, not knowledge about how to achieve particular objectives with very high confidence. So that because there are these large bodies of trying knowledge, the high-level logics call into play the knowledge that is required to achieve with some probability, far short of certainty, effective implementation. And that is the point that reconciles the power observation on the one hand with the, uh, with the fact that no specific solutions are actually brought forward uh, on the other. My first specific example of such a logic involves the increasing of the scale of equipment and draws upon the basic logic of 3D objects, which says if you increase the linear dimension uh, by some factor, the area dimensions go up by that squared and the volume uh, go up by that cubed if you maintain geometric uh, similarity across the uh, scales. Uh, so if the, if the object is a unit of productive equipment, then the question becomes, how do the different dimensions relate to the, to the capacity, to the economic value produced by the use of that uh, piece of equipment? And a common case long noticed is that, that capacity is closely related to the volume, for example, in containers, and cost is closely related to the surface area because the surface area is the material out of which you make the uh, container. Engineers have known that for a long time, and it gives rise to a scaling rule which says that capacity cost per unit uh, varies as the two-thirds power of capacity. Well, many of you probably are familiar with that basic idea. It is expounded uh, in, a, in the biological context in a wonderful essay, which I believe was from the 1920s by J.B.S. Haldane calling, called On Being the Right Size. Uh, and as I said, the principles involved have been used for engineering rules of thumb. They used to be featured in industrial organization economics as determinants of uh, economies of scale. And in particular, my friend Rick Levin, who has recently retired from a long stint as the president of Yale, uh, actually wrote his dissertation on the subject of these kinds of, of uh, scaling laws. So I'm just going to run quickly through this, uh, this uh, particular example here. Um, uh, and I think it is a rather striking one. Now, when I look at these pictures, I find it possible to think of that A380 as being kind of a great big DC-3. And so I'm going to explore the idea of thinking about the A380 as a great big DC-3. We can look at the ratio of the links, which is uh, th uh, 3.7, the Airbus being uh, 3.7 times, 3 times as long as that DC-3 is. And if geometrical sim similarity obtained, 
through this scaling, then uh, we would expect the area-related quantities to go up by the square of 3.7, which is 13.7, and, uh, and volume-related quantities to go up by the cube. An interesting uh, factor uh, in that comparison is the number of passengers that you can carry, which is up uh, by a factor of 20 or 30, depending on the configuration. And this uh, increase in scale of a, a very uh, important type of passenger aircraft uh, took overall 70 years to accomplish. Um, so the uh, the uh, uh, comparison that I make there of the area quantities uh, would lead you to believe that if it was just a question of the cabin floor, which has an area, that since passengers occupy space on the ca cabin floor, you might think that the, that the uh, uh, passenger carrying capacity went up by the square, so that by a factor of 13.7. It goes up by 20 or 30. What happened? I remember there's an upper deck. There are two of those cabin floors. So there's one area quantity which is the, main, the lower deck and one area quantity which is the upper deck. And when I adjust my calculation for the passenger capacity of the aircraft by allowing for the fact that the geomet geometry is different in this particular respect, I come out with a figure of 27.4, which, uh, which is nicely within the interval of 20 to 30 that you observe. So the simple scaling story gives me some kind of insight at least into what happened uh, over that long period of time. And then the question is, is there insight there into how it happened? And I am arguing that there is, that in part it was a question of the, uh, of the ways aeronautical engineers thought about their problems, the aspirations that they had, uh, what they thought they could achieve. Uh, by going to larger aircraft. But aircraft are obviously not made of geometrical shapes. They are made of actual physical materials. So you can't go from the DC-3 to the A380 in one quick step just by saying, let's think bigger and try for a larger aircraft. All the specific problems of an aircraft that make it function have to be solved along the path of that, uh, of that transition, and that's why the evolution uh, took 70 years. So there's something of a mystery there because the descriptive power of the scaling story is quite high, but uh, we know that there was so much more, so much more to it. And what I'm saying is, what if there is more to it, it's about the detailed knowledge of how to try to achieve the goal of the larger uh, aircraft. Okay, second example is the uh, going down example instead of going up, and that is in particular the situation in the miniaturization trajectory uh, in semiconductors. Gordon Moore, who's responsible for Moore's Law, made the statement you see on the screen, uh, in, 19, in a 1995 speech, which was 30 years after he declared uh, Moore's Law itself uh, in, his, in a 1965 uh, paper. Uh, but it's a very nice uh, codification of the general idea of the miniaturization uh, trajectory in uh, semiconductors. The uh, fact is that the law that, um, that Moore put forward 
was originally a descriptive observation having to do with the fact that since 1959, at that, whoops, <laughs> I have not quite read the white surface on which to put my papers here. Um, excuse me for that. Put these aside. Um, he, he was then observing simply that uh, that the uh, number of transistors on a chip had been doubling annually uh, since uh, 1959 and predicted the pace would continue. But when we look at the observed performance in the semiconductor industry, and in fact, if we look at the details of the discussion of uh, Moore's Law, then we find that perhaps a large part of the key is, again, about aspiration and about strategy. That the reason it sort of got, has gotten realized over a very extended period of time is that it became a guiding strategic idea for Intel and other participants uh, in, the, in the industry, and they have uh, successfully enacted it. Well, the consequence is that um, uh, the r real cost of uh, computing is estimated to have declined uh, by a factor of something like 22,000 uh, from 1959 to the present so that uh, computing that cost $10,000 in 1959 now costs 44 cents. And that is the basis of the huge transformation of so many uh, uh, fields of activity and the source, the fundamental enabler of the many ideas that put into practice uh, new forms of electronic devices, and particularly the uh, consumer electronic devices that we, that we love so much. So to do that, there were all these problems that had to be solved. There's particularly this recurring challenge of photolithographic technique uh, as they went to very small feature sizes and challenged the lithography practice with uh, the requirement for smaller and smaller feature sizes, running out of room in the visible spectrum eventually because of the behavior of light at the relevant frequencies. Uh, but yet, uh, although many crises were announced, for the most part, uh, they have uh, been overcome. And uh, today, we're in, as I understand it, something of a crisis again, and the same, the same kinds of questions, but um, we will see whether they uh, are overcome. So that is the, uh, the down trajectory. And once again, I emphasize there's a big idea, wonderfully stated by Gordon Moore in that 1995 speech, but then there's all of the massive implementation, the many, many uh, details which have to be handled in order to actually uh, accomplish innovation of that kind. Final example, received uh, some discussion last night in Robert Sutton's talk. Uh, not as uh, impressive at first glance uh, as something like the large aircraft or the tiny transistors on the, uh, on the semiconductor devices. But this is the sideways logic, the logic of doing more of the same only someplace else. And there are many organizations in the world, we call replicator organizations, whose strategy is basically that, to do more of the same and to do it, uh, to do it uh, in, in increasing numbers of locations. These 
sorts of organizations and their effects on the environment are highly visible, uh, highly visible in the cities of the world, in the airport concourses and the moors, in the, and the malls, in the uh, many uh, sectors that uh, I list there. But, they're all, but the issues are also common in any large organization that has multiple geographical uh, establishments uh, in which it is doing uh, more or less the same thing. Now, once again, if you took the only the simple the simple story, more of the same only someplace else, it might not sound very challenging, and it certainly wouldn't be challenging if the physical environment, if the environment were homogeneous. Uh, but if it were, if that were the case, then it would be easy to tuck this uh, particular logic of innovation under the headings of the static economics of production that one finds in the uh, in the economics uh, textbook. But in fact, there is a lot of heterogeneity across uh, space. Uh, first of all, simply for physical reasons, like the reasons of uh, climate. And uh, second, uh, however, and probably more importantly, for, uh, for cultural and institutional reasons, which affect very profoundly the uh, possibility of doing business in particular ways in a number of different locations. So on the way to being able to do more of the same only someplace else, the uh, replicator organizations face a variety of challenges which they uh, address in terms of choosing uh, appropriate sites, finding local representatives, transferring knowledge, setting up supply chains, uh, all of which is a very interesting and complicated uh, managerial managerial uh, achievement. It is following, as I said, the same pattern of a simple top-level idea uh, and then a lot of challenges as you pursue it. Okay, so those are my three examples for top-level uh, logics of innovation. And I think you will agree that if you look around the world, uh, look at where we are in any one of these uh, three uh, dimensions, that question of the air travel, the question of the electronic devices, uh, the prevalence of uh, hotels and uh, other uh, replicator organizations around the world, that the uh, shaping effect of these logics uh, is, is a very uh, profound one. Let me uh, proceed to the uh, final uh, stage then of my remarks here, which is to talk a little bit about the connections of this discussion to the uh, areas of economics, uh, strategic management, and finally, very briefly, on public policy. So uh, in economics, some of us have argued uh, for a while that there is a need for a substantial reform in economics about the way uh, the knowledge used in production is represented and analyzed. Economists, however, generally remain quite attached to the theoretical idea that economic actors generally get the right answers to their problems. They know what could be done, and then they decide or figure out what should be done. But in the kinds of processes of technological change that I have just talked about, the problem is that the comparison of alternatives, which would lead you to choosing the best one, 
is a process that is deeply intertwined with the discovery of alternatives, which is a sequential and path-dependent process driven by the fractal logics that uh, of kind I have uh, talked about. So uh, at any given time, in the pursuit of superior alternatives, the option exists of comparing all the ones you've already seen, but the option also exists of resorting to a higher level innovation logic and trying to find a better uh, answer to the problem. And the side-by-side existence of those two options is a great complicating factor for the idea of coming up with the best answer. So what we have shown over the years is that it is quite possible to model these sorts of technological change processes in ways that are at least a good deal more responsive to the micro-level realities than are the typical formulations that one finds in the economics literature. While it's possible to do that, it is, as far as we can see, impossible to do that and also maintain the commitment to the idea that actors generally get the right answers to their problems because the existence of these bodies of knowledge about how to try to create uh, new alternatives uh, is simply too uh, fundamental a complication of, of that problem. So some of us continue to advocate that if that's the choice, we should hang on to the ability to understand the active processes of change in the world, even at the expense of qualifying or, in fact, abandoning uh, a long-standing theoretical commitment in economics. Next uh, observation relevant to strategic management. So this uh, idea that I have uh, talked about um, actually reaches back in some part to uh, Schumpeter's comments in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy about uh, the routinization of innovation. And Schumpeter said that maybe innovation would be routinized and that would be uh, a development that was profoundly threatening uh, to capitalism. So he believed that uh, not, as, not only would innovation be routinized, but uh, it would bring about the decline of capitalist entrepreneurship and the ultimate triumph of socialism because uh, innovation is getting easier and therefore the state uh, could do it. Uh, entrepreneurs would no longer be necessary. Fortunately, uh, Bill Gates did not get the message, uh, and uh, neither did a lot, a lot of other people. So in, in contrast with Schumpeter's predictions, uh, entrepreneurship uh, seems to thrive as never before, and uh, you suggested last night that in Silicon Valley it was uh, th thriving in a something of a bubble mode and might be, might be uh, presenting some, some dangers. But aside from the egregious predictive errors uh, in that uh, Schumpeter discussion, which uh, possibly are attributable to uh, element of uh, deliberate provocation, uh, there remains this provocative proposal about uh, routinization of innovation, which is very much uh, related to what I am being uh, trying to say today. So 
uh, question lives on, and it has reemerged in the management literature since 1997 under a new title, or at least this is the way I think about this uh, more recent emergence. Uh, there's a new title. It's the term dynamic uh, capability. So in 1997, there was a paper published in the Strategic Management Journal on dynamic capabilities and strategic management. And according to T. Spazano and Schuen, uh, dynamic capability confers upon a firm the ability to cope with change, where successful coping involves, in particular, the maintenance of high probability. Profitability, sorry. High profitability. So that, um, that proposal, of course, attracted a great deal of interest and a very substantial uh, literature developed. Uh, I have, uh, I have uh, myself contributed to that literature in a few places, but unfortunately the literature is somewhat bogged down today in an element of disagreement about what the term dynamic capability actually means and whether there is any prospect of uh, useful empirical content uh, in this concept. But I don't have to deal with that particular part of the uh, uh, ongoing discussion very much because I know what I mean, and I've known what I meant from the start. Uh, so, um, so the dynamic capability, in my understanding, is exactly what is illustrated in the Intel case or the, uh, or the uh, Airbus case, the ability to mobilize over an extended period of time uh, underlying bodies of knowledge which permit the creation of new-to-the-world alternatives. And that requires, of course, uh, the organizational arrangements to command such knowledge, to organize it, to structure it, to bring it to effect in the implementation of innovative programs. Regardless of whether dynamic capability is the right term for that, uh, I think it is a very real and a very important phenomenon. It is also a phenomenon that has a particularly uh, striking and, and uh, distinctive economics because of the overhead or sunk cost nature of the, of the underlying resource commitments that actually permit large organizations to be innovative in that sort of a uh, sustained way. So, uh, in my view, this illustrates the affirmative answer to the question at the bottom of the slide. Uh, is it possible that the ability to cope with change is, can be improved through practice? And I say yes, but the emphasis uh, perhaps should be on the ability to create change. Much of the dynamic capability discussion has been on adjustment or coping with change. The cases that I just referred to illustrate the power of uh, dynamic capability in large organizations to actually actually uh, create change. Okay, the final uh, reference topic here is, is uh, the U.S. innovation system or the innovation systems of advanced countries generally, but actually the U.S. Uh, case is quite, is quite uh, distinctive, I think. So what we have in the U.S. today is an accident of history. It is the coming together of a set of considerations which have 
multiple roots. One very important set of roots goes back to the Cold War and the science and technology investments that the U.S. government made uh, in the Cold War, which uh, included, among other things, uh, the early investments in the development of semiconductor technology. In uh, the early 1960s, the market for semiconductors was almost entirely a military uh, market. So, as the late uh, Keith Pavitt uh, uh, said uh, about uh, U.S. industrial policy, it's uh, a matter of the effort in, that was uh, expended in the battles against cancer and communism. Um, that uh, is a that remark uh, occurred in the context of the discussion of whether the United States had an industrial policy, and many Europeans uh, said it did, and the Americans said, oh, heaven's sake, no, we do not uh, do that kind of thing in the United States. But the objection to that was, and in fact, the United States did a great deal of that kind of thing, but they did it in the context of, uh, of uh, defense procurement in, in particular. So we have a system which has these, which which benefited from these enormous investments, and which today benefits from these many ideas that uh, implement the possibilities that were generated on the basis of uh, technological investments made some time ago now, uh, which created a great opportunity, a great fund of this knowledge of how to try of which uh, I have spoken. So that is the way I read the current situation. Actually, this thing works pretty well. It may work pretty well, it may, may work better in, in the United States than it does elsewhere, particularly because of this legacy of very large investments, not just in defense-related matters, but as the cancer reference suggests, also, uh, also in biology. So, uh, so we had a foundation laid for different reasons. We now are vigorously exploiting it, and the combination of those two things has proven quite effective. In principle, presumably, if we set out to design a better set of institutional arrangements to promote innovation, one could arrive at a better set of institutional arrangements. But in practice, one wonders, uh, given, uh, given the uh, state of the conversation about innovation, I think it is um, uh, hazardous to suppose that even if we had uh, the opportunity to do so, that we could actually arrive at a, at a uh, better system. So uh, <laughs> that suggests to me, at least, that we, what we need to do is to continue to, uh, to pursue uh, in depth, the understanding of the system that we actually actually have. So let me uh, let me uh, wind up. I uh, have tried to uh, propose to you that the discussion of innovation uh, has gotten out of balance. That there is now too much emphasis on ideas, on creativity, on entrepreneurship, uh, on mimicking Silicon Valley, and so forth. And that we've tended to neglect the other part of the story, the story about 
the large, large organizations mobilizing massive engineering resources, the stories about the deep understanding of science and technology issues uh, that is, uh, supports the effectiveness of these dynamic capabilities uh, in these organizations. And I have uh, proposed to you that the logics that I have identified and the many other logics that are out there are very powerful uh, shapers of the world. But as individuals, we are nowhere near in a position to be able to predict where any one of these particular things is likely to go uh, in a few years. So we are uh, in a, in a uh, torrent of change in the system, particularly in technology-related domains, produced by profound expertise sitting in pockets in different places around the world and producing consequences uh, which we only begin to appreciate when they come uh, right in our face uh, down, down the road uh, and, and find it very hard to anticipate. So paradoxically, the very existence of this body of uh, systematic knowledge about how to try um, leaves us in a world that is, if anything, more mystifying than the world in which such knowledge was, was not, not so prevalent. Meanwhile, also, of course, there are many problem domains, including uh, social policy domains, in which we do not have the kinds of spectacular achievements that we have seen in the field of technology, in which better knowledge about how to try, try to achieve superior results would be extremely welcome, and we need to redirect our attention in that direction as well. So thank you. Thank you very, very much. I, I think I've heard you speak on any number of occasions, and this is a great synthesis. This is right. A great synthesis. Okay. It takes us, I think, many steps uh, uh, further. Well, I think there's a logic we're about to implement here, and the logic is uh, dialogue and debate. <clears throat> Pretty traditional one, uh, well known, uh, and it's up to you guys to implement, right? And I'm sure there's enough fund of uh, knowledge out there. Uh, you, can, you can come sit next to me now. Okay. Uh, in which you, on which you could draw uh, to implement that great um, history-shaping idea. So it's the rules of the game are simply to uh, put up your hand and one of the stewards uh, will come and give you a microphone. It is a convention to identify yourself by name and if you're not associated with the LSC to just indicate where you're from. Um, and over to you. Professor Kalinikos, I'm sure you have something to uh, raise, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Sydney. That's a, an excellent talk. Um, I have a number of reflections rather than a question. One I would like to ask you is, um, is there anything that underlines these three logics you said? So I want to go a step back. Even Is there something common? For instance, Varian would say that much of the innovation she describes as recombinant innovation. So these logics basically are expressions of our ability to bring together things that were previously not possible to combine. So that's the first kind of, of 
of, of question I would like to ask you. Do you see anything that goes behind those logics and what would that be in the case? Recombinant innovation is one way, but perhaps there are others as well. Okay, that's a that's a very good question. It gives me an opportunity to uh, speak to the uh, recombination point that you just raised. Um, so, I was I, I would consider the idea of uh, recombining the existing elements uh, to be, in effect, another high level logic. Right? I could have put it in my list of high level logic. It was the one that which, which was uh, emphasized by Schumpeter, who said uh, this innovation is, uh, is a matter of uh, re recombination, making new combinations. And uh, it's also, uh, by the way, since uh, Robert Sutton was here last night, uh, he and Hagenhorn wrote this paper in the mid-90s about IDEO uh, as technology broker and gave a really remarkable picture of uh, a company working the recombination idea to the hilt uh, and, uh, and, and in a somewhat routinized way. They had a codified manual for brainstorming. A manual for brainstorming? Uh, that sounds a little contradictory, but, the, but they uh, did. So, so the uh, recombination idea is a very is a very powerful one, and certainly a very common element. And much of what is going on in, under the ideas heading today is is making use of the things that are available and putting them together uh, in new ways. But I don't think that is uh, a story that fits the power of, for example, the uh, the physical scaling uh, logic, right? Because that, as I said, that is. Uh, uh, at bottom, geometry. Uh, it's, it's just about uh, facts of geometry about, about 3D objects. But the remarkable thing is that engineers taking these um, mathematical propositions uh, uh, are inspired to find physical inst instantiations of the kinds of improvements that, that the uh, mathematics would suggest, and they succeed. And similarly, I, I think the, the uh, Gordon Moore statement that I had on the screen probably comes as close to being a deep uh, account of why the miniaturization trajectory in semiconductors uh, has proved uh, so, so powerful. It's an account which is uh, grounded in the physics of, uh, of uh, electricity. And I'm not sure I know of anything that's deeper than that as an, as an account of why that works. So I would, in response to your question, I would, I would take the recombination idea and put it off on the list with the uh, basic, basic logics. It's a looser one with more diverse manifestation, but I would put it in that list. And I think the other things are really uh, of a different kind. Thank you. I don't know how much cold calling I'm going to do tonight. Lourdes? Um, so, hi, Sydney. I'm Lourdes Sosa. I'm part of the faculty in the Department of Management. Um, and I'm going to make a self-serving question, as I've done before in other of your talks, <laughs> uh, always taking advantage of your attention. Um, I, I have a project, and I'm, I think it's connected to, I see it as connected to your discussion on 
entrepreneurship and startups versus the dynamic capabilities of established firms. So I have a project that I start and stop because I cannot make up my mind on whether there's any lesson to be learned about these dynamics and maybe you know you can settle the argument. I've been very interested in technological change and the transition of specifically the pharma industry into biotech. But I found a few startups that are founded to do the old technology. So, so they're basically founded in the transition years in which everyone's trying to leave the old technology to go to the new one. And yet there's a few founders that build these completely new companies to do that. In fact, a subset of them um, actually acquire old drugs that have been shelved by large firms to try to do a business out of them. I've thought that because it seems like a mirror image, there's a lesson to be learned there. In different conferences, some the extreme comment I got was, um, in entrepreneurship, there's always someone crazy. There's nothing to be learned to study the few crazy ones. So I'm just intrigued by, you think there's anything, and I, I, I actually think this happens in more industries. Is there anything to be learned about the startups who do the old, as a contrast to you know the startups we thought were driving the new? That's uh, another very good question. Uh, with, with two questions, we're reprising choices as I made as I thought about what to put in the lecture and what to leave out. Um, so, um, so what you refer to uh, is, I think, a very, a very interesting and real phenomenon. I, w I would not, uh, that is in general, you know, above the level of the startup question that you specifically raised. So I would, I would link your question to the uh, very, very general history of challenge and response in, in technologies. The general observation being um, the, the uh, old technology is ever and always a moving target for, for the new one. Uh, because uh, the, when the competitive uh, pressure for, from a new technology appears, um, people rearrange their thinking about the old technology and, and, and its value and often uh, come up with new ways to make uh, effective use of it. So there's the, there's the, there's the story of, about uh, sailing ships and to that effect, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's a number, there is a number of these cases, but the main, the one that is perhaps closest to my talk, uh, is in, in fact, uh, this phenomenon of the recurrent, uh, crises in, in the, uh, photolithography process in semiconductors, uh, which, uh, which Rebecca Henderson uh, described very wonderfully in a paper in the mid, mid 90s, at which point, uh, you know, it had been going on for, for 30 years. Uh, and that is the phenomenon is that the uh, that, that the uh, uh, running out of, of room spurs new activity to make to make the old uh, continually continue to be viable. So the subtitle of Rebecca's paper uh, is the unexpectedly long old age of optical photolithography, meaning the technology. Uh, uh, Started to move again, you know, as it was thought to be outmoded, and as investments were taking place in uh, in other areas. 
So uh, that I do not put in the list of the kinds of logic that I talk about because it's a much more demand-driven phenomenon. You know, why this is a mechanism directing uh, demand for apl applications for, for the old, uh, old uh, technology. Uh, but, it's a, but it is a quite, a, quite a general mechanism. And I think there's some economics involved uh, probably about, uh, about the prices at which you can pick up those existing assets, right? That, that's, I would guess, was part of your story, you know. When people think it's over, the prices of the assets that you require in order to do it uh, tend to fall, and when those uh, when they fall, people say, "Oh, maybe it isn't over after all. Uh, we can we can perhaps exploit that that pricing situation." So that's per that's perhaps a, a part of the economics. But I think it's a very a very good topic. Very good, gentlemen over here, please. Uh, Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. Uh, Professor Winter, you, you spoke eloquently about the um, about innovation and the pathway to uh, developments. I was wondering if you could say a few words on what you consider to be the main hindrances, uh, uh, the roadblocks which prevent or slow down uh, further innovations. I'm thinking perhaps vested interests might suffer from from major breakthroughs. For instance. I mean, would the petroleum industry suffer from, from a greater usage of electric car cars in urban areas? I, th I think that uh, those vested interests are very much uh, what Schumpeter had in mind when he was uh, talking about the difficulties that the, that the uh, innovating entrepreneur had to overcome. It's not just the, it's not just the uh, local or technological difficulties that have to be overcome, but it's the configuration uh, of the interests that want to that want to uh, continue to profit from from the existing uh, arrangements, uh, and that can that that can happen, you know, at the levels of uh, national policy. It can happen at the level of local zoning. It it has a, it has a lot of different uh, uh, different manifestations. So I, I do think that that is um, uh, that that is a, an important uh, a part part of the story. Um, in terms of other obstacles, I guess the implicit question in my talk is the question of whether right now we are, uh, on the one hand celebrating kinds of innovation which do not confront very serious obstacles in the institutional arrangements or in the, or in the technology. That is, there are relatively easy kinds of innovation. And then the question is, are we, quote, eating our seed corn? That is, to, to what extent might it be the case that this exploitation of, of opportun technological opportunity created in the past by very large not-for-profit investments uh, is now going forward and might run out at some point. So there, there is a implied question about about uh, government support for R and D, uh, about the possible content of of that kind of government support, um, which are important uh, important aspects of the policy debate. Uh, as as I said, uh, it's very hard to know <laughs> enough about these uh, these processes to 
recommend with any confidence uh, on those questions. But I think, I think that issue, are we going to face obstacles because we're going to exhaust a stock which was funded for different reasons in the past, that's a possibility I think we should keep in mind. Reside in the economy and society. In what? Where do they reside? What do they are? Reside, yeah. Yeah, uh, in economy and society. Are they abstract ideas? Are they practices, as I think you suggested? Are, are institutional uh, uh, residing on institutions? Where are they? Uh, you don't mean, I suppose, that's my question, you don't mean that just abstract schemes. No. Are you talking so about the logics the, or are you talking about the fund of knowledge that's used in implementing them, or both? The logics. So the, the, Intel, the Intel case is particularly clear and interesting in that regard because as I just quoted a fragment on one slide of, of Intel's website today, which today, as for some years, I don't know many of them, is very explicit on the idea of Moore's Law as a de facto strategy, right? Uh, that is to say, it's not just that there's this technological heuristic about about miniaturization and so on. It's the idea of maintaining this pace is a, uh, is a strategy. And that's interesting because, because it is a very high-level abstract idea on, on the whole, but think of the incredible uh, complexity of the implementation, you know, of the manifestation of the actual carrying out of such a program. So, so there it is, and I think you would, one would say the same thing about, the, about many, many uh, technological areas where there are large organizations doing very complicated things. These uh, organizations contain enormous amounts of very specific capability to pursue the characteristic problems that arise in, that, in their particular uh, technological fields. Uh, and they figure out a way to uh, still make a living, right, to, to get enough valuable product out of that to, uh, to be able to uh, survive. Uh, so, so at one level, as I already said, at one level you could make the case it's really all those details that is, that is uh, controlling this situation, because for sure you don't have anything valuable unless you've got the capabilities related to the details. But on the other hand, the descriptive power, the uh, motivating power, the strategic use of much more high-level abstract ideas, that also seems to be quite important and, and visible in the world. So in the end, I don't know what the answer to your question is, really. <laughs> uh, so I think that is, a, I think that is an, interesting, an interesting puzzle. Uh, Gordon Moore, uh, actually, I was thinking about looking this one up uh, again. That, uh, uh, it's got a statement somewhere that says, 
I think I can see how we're going to continue this thing for a couple of more generations, meaning four years, right? Uh, but after that, I can't see. But past experience tells me that we will figure out a way, you know, that we, that we have been in that situation many times before, can't see how you're going to continue this, but uh, as it turns out after the uh, uh, fact, they did continue it. And I think actually says, it's something of a mystery. It's something of a mystery that, that uh, this thing, which is not predictable and so on in any kind of detail, yet evolves in such a systematic way when you try, when people try. Daniel, I, Mayunza, I imagine that you're saving your response to that uh, for, uh, for the dinner, but maybe you'd share it with the rest of us. If you could just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, so, Professor Winter, um, you mentioned that uh, perhaps um, we ought to think differently about uh, economics and perhaps even how economics is taught. Uh, and I'm just reminded that just this week, the members of the post-crash economics society at the University of Manchester um, have joined 42 other groups of students arguing for a change in the way that economics is taught. Um, but this is perhaps not to do with innovation, but with the fact that, you know, the financial crash, etc. Um, one element that I, being somebody who's interested in the financial markets, one element that I didn't see in your, in your presentation is any reference at all to the capital markets and the role that they play in the U.S. innovation system. So you mentioned the fight against cancer and the uh, fight against communism. Um, but I didn't see anywhere in the presentation any reference to IPOs, um, venture capitalists. So I'm wondering whether there's, it's, it's tough to formulate what I, what I think I want to say. It seems as if, um, if it is indeed, uh, so if what's important is these logics, um, perhaps um, the way in which the financial markets are now being organized, which in, in many ways it, it reflects the understanding of decision-making that economics has, um, perhaps is not doing a good service. And, and perhaps part of the problem um, in, in, in why we might be running out of our own corn, I think you said, is that uh, is, is the way in which the financial system is organized. So I guess what are your thoughts on, on how the, the capital markets in the U.S. is currently funding innovations? Well, I think you're on target uh, in, in the sense that the uh, considerations I featured in my talk are the considerations that are not featured in uh, much of the current um, uh, discussion and, and pursuit uh, of innovation. So the, the simple uh, economic observation would be uh, probably, probably the payoffs are, in spite of, this is slightly paradoxical, in spite of the fact that we have these very low short-term interest rates, um, probably the payoffs 
from investment in advancing th that foundational level understanding uh, are too slow to arrive in order for them to be very attractive uh, for private capital. So you, you have, uh, in my view, this situation where the, the current uh, activity is in effect the benefit of beneficiary of the legacy of these very very large investments in the past and uh, and you could not expect under existing uh, institutional arrangements you could not expect the private sector to come up with comparable levels of fundamental investment in science and technology it's just not in scale um, and by the way, it's not just the defense. The, the, the cancer story is exactly the same in terms of the, uh, we, we invested an incredible amount in, in, in fundamental research uh, in, uh, in uh, microbiology in the pursuit uh, of, of a cure for cancer as, as it was explained to the Congress. And, the, and now, or recently, you begin to see in the private sector the reaping of the benefits of a very, very long period of very substantial expenditure on laying down uh, the basic uh, research, research foundations. So those are things um, that, as I said, you can't expect private capital to do that. The time horizons aren't right. The capture of benefits uh, is, is too conjectural. Economists have understand that, understood that basic point for a, for a long time. Um, what the implication is is hard to say because it's hard to know how long we can live on the inheritance we have. Right? It's hard to see how far that inheritance is going to go, how long it's going to last, whether we whether we really need another round of more fundamental uh, uh, investment. I've had some contact with the folks at CERN, and they like to talk a lot about, uh, about the ultimate benefits to society of their quest for the Higgs particle. Uh, but um, but uh, what they get relatively specific on that question, the benefit to the society is not much to do with the Higgs particle. It has to do with the incredible technology uh, developed in order to pursue the Higgs particle. So, uh, so perhaps that's going to be another case. You know, you, you convince people to uh, uh, find this particle, and an incredible investments in technology were made as a result. And maybe this technology is going to have some other uh, other implications too. Alice Rivlin. Uh, Alice Rivlin, the Brookings Institution in Washington, and I happen to be Sydney's wife, uh, <laughs> uh, Sid, your uh, examples are all commercial products. Uh, and uh, most of the innovation literature that I'm familiar with that economists have been churning out uh, does deal with commercial products. Is there any reason these, lo these logics don't apply to the public sector, to improving public uh, uh, delivery of all kinds of services? There are probably some reasons uh, that we... <laughs> um, there is a there is a reason uh, for for the third 
which I think is uh, important and which you appreciate, and that is that the sideways, that in in, in the private sector, uh, local success both uh, both inspires, motivates, and finances uh, success another local success elsewhere. That's what the that's what the logic is, right? We. We've got this successful way of doing business here. Uh, maybe it will be successful elsewhere. Let's transplant it uh, and and draw on the finance from the original success. Well, as you know, the, the processes by which we spread across political ju- jurisdictions are rather different and more complicated than that. So there's a whole uh, there's a whole subject of how about how you spread success in these nonprofit or governmental uh, governmental areas. But basically, uh, you know, I was going to say in, in response to the previous question about obstacles that um, that uh, the willingness to commit resources and to seriously cope with the organizational issues on a large scale uh, is obviously uh, fundamental to doing to having these kinds of successes. And examples of that appear in, in the private sector, uh, and occasionally uh, private, perhaps examples of that appear in the in the in the public sector. But um, uh, it's hard to know what the secret is to inspire everybody to make the investments and insist on the quality of management and the standards that you need uh, in order to actually succeed with some such innovative effort, and I think that remains a big challenge. Got a man on the moon. Right, so that's, so that's a great example. So, so there's, a, there's a relatively, uh, an, an indivisible, uh, very, very challenging objective, uh, which we uh, decided to finance, and, and which has an enormous organizing power in its own right, right, because it's so unambiguous whether, whether this is uh, uh, happening or not. And in a lot of cases, in uh, social problems and so on, you don't have any 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 uh, clear uh, goal that is comparably unambiguous. That is a very important point, and a subject a subject for another a subject for another lecture. That is that is a very important. Yes, (laughs) up in the back, please. Professor, thank you for this. My name is Arsena Jeffers, and I'd like your views on the NHS and the work of the NHS, because here in the UK, not many people know what the NHS does. They just think that it does hospital and um, accident and so on. But the NHS is housing hospital, um, road, traffic, airport, airlines, all these type of things, police, prisons, Millions, I do not think that anyone has already worked out exactly how much it does the NHS cost. It looks after people from pre-birth to post-death. If a person live a happy life, the NHS look after them. If, if they live a life that is a careless attitude towards what they're doing, the NHS looks after them. So when it comes to innovation and technologies and all the things we've been speaking about here tonight is very good, but this is an issue that I would like your views on. Where does the NHS fit into that? Because 
it covers, in my view, everything to do with life and the living of life. Thank you. The NHS. The health. Yeah, the health service. Right. That's what I thought. Okay. So. So I'm not I'm not sure what what the thrust of your question actually is. So you have you have a uh, as you suggest a very large, very important uh, institution there, and and the problem of of making it more innovative or more effective goes back to the issues that uh, that Alice raised. Um, I think there is. I think there is a promise. I think there is a lot of promise in that uh, area, um, in terms of ideas that are being vigorously, uh, vigorously pursued. But maybe something not quite as powerful as the as the three examples that I that I actually uh, looked at this evening. Sorry, that's not a satisfactory answer. But I'm, I'd have to think about it further. In the front, right here. Hi, uh, you mentioned that we might exhaust your name. Oh, sorry, yeah, Enrico Forti. I'm part of the faculty at the UCL Department of Management Science and Innovation. Um, you mentioned that we might like exhaust the low-hanging fruits because like huge investments were made uh, long ago and like resources were committed towards like a, a big goal. But my question was like, how is there a way to understand whether the goal that we might want to commit resources for it's big enough. So, for example, if we want to like uh, restart this cycle of like uh, committing resources to like uh, towards a goal to generate like uh, um, ideas to try in the future and like uh, willingness to try things, how do we find out whether like uh, I don't know going to Mars or like what Google X is doing, like investing in like moonshot? It's enough. How do you know whether that the sort of the jump it's like big enough? Wonderful questions, really. Um, so uh, the thing about cancer and communism was that uh, that it sort of answered the problem, right? How do you how do you know whether you should be spending a vast amount of money on this? Uh, and the answer is, well, you don't want the communists to win, do you? Oh, and, and we do want to cure cancer, don't we? And so, and so you have uh, a an objective, an objective which can be uh, sold um, uh, to the public, and which which uh, then creates the uh, the, the uh, political basis of really large scale systematic effort on certain kinds of, of, of problems. Uh, but uh, so so when when the the uh, Cold War uh, ended, uh, one one of the happy thoughts uh, that I had uh, in that happy moment was uh, this is great. Now we actually have to think carefully about science policy uh, because uh, because the uh, Escape from the careful thinking about the benefits and how they balanced against the cost that had been provided by this very generous defense-motivated funding. That's gone. 
Now we have to decide the kinds of questions that you were raising. How do we decide which of these things is actually, uh, is actually worth doing? And that is a, uh, so I, I was expecting actually that there would then ensue at about that time a, uh, a very interesting discussion about what the principles were for doing the, uh, uh, for doing the science policy analysis that, you, that was needed. Not very much of that actually developed. Um, we don't have much better idea now than we ever did about about these uh, kinds of questions. And I don't have any easy uh, answer to those questions. Uh, but I do think that um, that we may need some, we need some superior uh, institutional arrangements in which to carry on that discussion. Because the discussion is, uh, uh, is incredibly, incredibly shaped by uh, interested advocacy of all kinds. You know, down to the down to the uh, uh, disciplinary causes and paradigms, you know, in the, in the social sciences um, and and uh, everywhere else, the people who who are uh, who are advocating particular steps rarely have to engage in a serious way with somebody who would rather do something else. So unless you have a forum for a serious argument about which one of these things is actually uh, deserving of support, I don't think the quality of the argument is going to improve, and I retain the faith that better decisions uh, ultimately tend to come out of better understanding, and if you don't, if you don't pursue the better understanding, you're not going to get very uh, good decisions. So, so that is a really a big open, open uh, agenda. Figure out how to do that. You know, I respect, I respect these wonderful people at CERN very much. But if you ask me, you know, I'm not so sure <laughs> that uh, that I would uh, put those kinds of billions of dollars into that particular uh, scientific cause when there were lots of other scientific causes and and the social policy issues that deserve attention. But I don't know how you prove these cases. It's very, very hard. Neil Gaskell, um, and this is very risky of me because I'm not a professional academic. I'm a business executive, but connected with LSE as a governor. Um, and I've been fascinated by your, your ex exposition, and, and I, I, I'm struggling, though, from my own experience, I've been connected in the relatively recent past with two different businesses, both of which are innovators, one of which has been certainly successful and the other one, the jury is still definitely out on that. Um, but neither, I'm finding it hard to fit them into I, I, any of those three logics or indeed any of the other ones that have been mentioned. And I'm wondering what the legitimacy of the or the fundamental whether the fundamental nature of the three logics that you explained which were as you say geometrically um, uh, uh, identified yeah, as really robust uh, the both of the other two businesses the two businesses that I, I'm talking about fundamentally innovated in terms of uh, molecular re-engineering so that you could produce materials which were capable of performing differently uh, and better 
than they had ever been thought of before. Almost new materials, but not really. It was new performance characteristics. So that seemed to me to be quite a fundamental logic. It's chemical engineering, but not quite its physical engineering mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and in the case of the one that succeeded, which is perhaps the easier case to, to talk about, that has revolutionized the ability of the oil industry to you know, develop very deep water oil reserves. Mm -hmm. So quite a successful thing and, and, mm -hmm. and, a, and a profitable thing. But only by materials management, basically, and, and it's molecular management of materials mm -hmm. to enable materials to do things at in conditions which other materials hadn't done. Now, is that a different logic, or is it part of those logics, or what's the, the content, what's the legitimacy of the three logics that isn't applicable to the, make this one a fourth? I certainly don't, I don't, I think you're quite correct to say it doesn't fit to, uh, in the boxes that I provided, but as I said, there are many other, there are many other boxes. Um, I probably have to study the um, the particular cases uh, carefully to decide or to determine whether I thought there was a uh, whether there were rel relatively high level simple organizing ideas which you could then see as being elaborated in the style of the other uh, of the examples. I don't know whether that's the case, but I suspect that um, that um, uh, you know the research technique. This is relates to uh, so other, the the command the command of uh, certain bodies of research technique um, uh, often plays a similar role as a logic so gene splicing for example okay is 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 a case where something comes out of uh, science and but the thing that comes out of science is not uh, ready for the market product, it's, an, it's a, another theory of how to try, right? It's another high-level theory. If you can do this uh, in these cases, where can you take that uh, body of research technique and, and actually get to useful things with it? So I don't know whether material science uh, fits that model, but I wouldn't be surprised that, that there are Back there somewhere, there's, there's a body of, of uh, research technique and orientation to the problems, and, and that uh, serves as an organize, organizing structure and promotes the continuation. That's, that was my guess. Well, um, we do have a lot of interest yet in the group, but um, uh, there is this implementation constraint, which is uh, we're not supposed to run over much beyond 8 o'clock. But I think... Um, uh, well, we have a lot of interest. Should we break the rules? <laughs> um, well, I think what we should do, actually, is stick with the constraints, um, but there will be an opportunity to come up and uh, ask the question individually before we have to run off for dinner. Would you uh, join me in thanking Sid Winter for making it possible to have an, an evening of great intellectual interest and exchange? Thanks for colleagues for asking questions and making points. Can we celebrate this occasion?